You know, as we all spend more time than we have in the past online, especially social media, uh, we're all thinking about things in new ways. We're thinking about, hey, is this true or is this real or what's the story behind that? And there's a meme that I've seen for many years on social media. And typically when it's shared, it's used to try to encourage other people to not give up. It's this meme right here. And there's a man on the bottom and he's, he's given up digging just before he gets to the prize. And there's another one who looks a little bit manic maybe. And he is obsessed with getting there and he has not given up. And you know, there's a, a story, a real life true story behind this picture. And that true story, it's not about diamonds, it's about gold. And the Harby family, H-R-B-Y, the Harby family lived in Maryland and the gold rush took over two of them specifically. R.U. Harby and his uncle got taken by this gold rush that was happening in America. And so they left Maryland and went to Colorado. They went west in search of gold. And they began digging in one particular area and they located an ore of gold a massive amount that would change their life and the future of their family. So they put the dirt back, they hid the gold, and they returned to Maryland to raise the funds to actually pull the gold out of the ground. Luckily, they were able to raise those funds after many months, and they returned to the area they had left a record of, hired people who had the skills and the equipment to help them dig it out, and they began digging. The only problem was is they couldn't locate the ore that they themselves had found before and had covered. They did all they could to search and dig. They spent all the money they had and then eventually had to sell their equipment for literally pennies on the dollar to some people who had helped them to be able to get enough money to go back home and resume their lives. One of those people that they had sold some of those equipment to was convinced that these people, R.U. Harvey and his uncle, weren't crazy that they actually had found gold. And so that man hired an engineer, somebody who had the perspective and the insight to study that area. And what that engineer found is that the, the people who were digging, the Harvey family, had not taken into consideration the shifts that happened in the earth's crust. They hadn't considered the fault lines in the area. And what this engineer discovered as he mapped it out is that the gold had moved just three feet But because of this, they never found it. That man who hired the engineer did. And millions of dollars later, his life and his family's lives were changed. Now, this isn't a message today about how to get rich, about how to find gold. But it is a message today about the importance of establishing the right perspective. When you and I are in the middle of storms, especially ones that we would categorize as epic storms, One of the hardest things to do is to see clearly, to have a healthy, biblical, God-honoring, life-giving perspective about what it is that you're going through. And for the last four weeks, we've been in a series called Unsinkable, Navigating Epic Storms. We've been looking at the life of Noah and the epic storm that he lived through in the ark and learning about how his experiences What God did in and through him offer us insight about the storms we're going through today and the storms that lie ahead in the future. And today we're going to talk about that idea of perspective. 
But first, we want to let you know that this series was inspired by a book by our friend Robin Kaufman called Surviving Epic Trials. And we obtained a few copies of the original edition of the book. She's gone on to update it and is offering a course based upon it right now online. But we have a few copies of the physical book that we want to make available to you. So this Tuesday... May the 12th, from 2 to 4 p.m. at our roster campus, you can come by. We'll have gloves and masks on. And if you bring $20 cash or check, we'll get you one of those copies. First come, first serve, limited time basis. When we're out, we're out. But if you're looking to go deeper into the story and look at the book that inspired the messages you've been going through, we want to make that available to you. But today, as we start week four of this five-week series, we'll wrap up next week. Here's the big idea that we're going to talk about today. That desperate times offer us a choice between self-reliance and surrender. If you're in the middle of a desperate time, if you're in the middle of a difficult season, if the storm that you're in right now is going longer and is more challenging than it ever has been, I believe that you're going to face the choice between self-reliance and surrender. And we see Noah facing that choice. And today we're going to look at the scriptures and see how he navigated that choice and what he decided to do. Now, Noah's story is in the book of Genesis, chapter 6 through 9. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. If you're new to church, or, or new to the Bible, it's the easiest book to find right there in the beginning. As I said earlier, we're, we're in the fourth week of a five-week series. So if you want to get caught up and if today kind of piques your interest, we'd encourage you to go to prescottcornerstone.com, our website. Go underneath the watch tab to the sermon page and you'll see the first three weeks in this series there. Today from Genesis 8, as we talk about the, the choice between self-reliance and surrender, we're going to explore Noah's story and we're going to see three temptations that we face during the latter days of a storm. Three temptations that we're all going to face at some point. And let's jump into Noah's story right now in Genesis chapter 8. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. The raven went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then Noah sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took the dove, and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, that same day, And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, a very good sign. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Here's the first temptation. We're tempted to manipulate our circumstances rather than persist in them. When we end up in a storm and we're in the latter days and we're so excited to get to the end for it to end and for us to get out of it, like Noah, we are tempted to manipulate our circumstances rather than persist in them. 
Now, if you're new to this series, one of the things we've been learning is that Noah's time in the ark is a lot longer than we realize. Many of us have heard about how it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but that's just the beginning of Noah's time in the ark. Over the last few weeks, we've begun to add up these times that the Bible gives us. We see that he was in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights while it rained. We see that it was 110 days of the water rising after the rain stopped. We see that it was 74 days that Noah and the ark were on a mountaintop before they saw any dry ground. And then that passage right there, Genesis chapter 8, verse 6, references 40 days. And that 40 days is from when they saw the dry mountaintops to when they saw dry ground. And when you add up these numbers, if my math is decent, you get 274 days. In Genesis chapter 8, Beginning in verse 6, Noah has been on the ark for nine months, 274 days. Can you imagine how restless Noah and his family might have felt? How much cabin fever they might have had? How much frustration they might have had? How, How great the longing was in them to be out of the ark? There are many of us that that we've only been home for 40 or 50 or 60 days because of COVID-19 here in the spring of 2020, and we're feeling restless. Well, how restless would you be after 274 days inside one place? You notice there are no kids in this story. I think that's part of the reason why they endure it so well. You know, I love my kids, but you put kids in this and the entire thing changes. Just for a little bit of context, if you were to go 274 days in the past and imagine that we, like Noah, had been in the ark for 274 days today, the day we entered the ark would have been August 10th, 2019. That's 274 days ago today, as of me speaking this message. 274 days. Think about all the things that you've been through, all the things that you've experienced, all the places that you've been, all the people that you've interacted with, all the feelings that you've had, all the moments that you have celebrated in the last 274 days. And that's how long Noah was in this ark. In Arizona, where I'm speaking today, uh, Governor Ducey introduced a stay-at-home order on April 1st, 2020. And many of us are experiencing that right now. Well, if that period lasted 274 days from April 1st, 2020, fast forward 274 days, that would be December 31st, 2020. So if we all went in an ark on April 1st and we stayed in that ark... That would be no summer vacation, no Labor Day, no Thanksgiving, no Halloween, no Christmas, no football season, no changing of the leaves, all those things. That's how long Noah was in that ark. And I have to believe that after 274 days, he was restless and like you and like me, when, when we get restless, we are so tempted to manipulate our way out of a circumstance because of our restlessness. When we're, we're feeling that desire to just get out of there or get onto something else or just get free, manipulation looks like a really easy way to get that outcome that we want. 
And yet in the story of Noah, as he's sending these birds, this, this raven and this dove, to see what is happening beyond what he can see, beyond where he is in the ark, you have to wonder, okay, so is Noah being persistent? Or is he manipulating his way out? And I've been reflecting on the difference this week, just for my own benefit, to try to figure out what's going on in my heart. Am I being persistent or am I being manipulative? Is this action rooted in persistence or is this action rooted in manipulation? And here's a chart I created just for myself and it was helpful. So I'm going to share it with you today. Persistence is about trusting God. Whereas manipulation is really rooted or an expression of distrusting God. Persistence is driven by a desire for God's will, whereas manipulation is driven by my impatience, by your impatience. When I'm persisting in something, I'm continuing to work through my feelings. But when I'm trying to manipulate my way out of a circumstance, I'm running from my feelings. Persistence is about embracing God's way. Manipulation is about doing it my way. Persistence is about accepting boundaries. Manipulation is about rejecting boundaries. And part of the hard part of restlessness is going, are these boundaries that I should accept? Or are these boundaries that I should reject? And many of us have a hard time with any boundaries at all. And that's why manipulation is so tempting. Because we hate the idea of any boundary in our life at all. And then persistence is about active obedience. Whereas manipulation is veiled obedience, it may look like we are doing the right thing, but what we're trying to do is take power and control in a circumstance so that we can get out. And if you're like me, I saw myself in some of each of these categories. I saw some persistence in my heart and some desire or inkling towards manipulation. And yet what we see in the life of Noah is I believe Noah is an example of persistence. I believe he's an example of someone whose restlessness pushed him not towards manipulation, but towards persistence because of how he continues in this trial. And we see in the life of Noah through the sending of these birds that these birds become almost like prayers that he sends out from the ark because the desperate times that Noah was in began to change how he prayed. And I believe in our lives, if you're in the middle of desperate times, there's some places in my life where I'm in the middle of desperate times and desperate times change how we pray. If you think back in the past on the hardest seasons of life, the most difficult things that you have been through, I will tell you that you prayed differently. I pray differently in those times than I do in the good times or the easy times or the comfortable times. There is a longing and a dependence and a desperation that begins to influence the words that I pray and the posture that I pray with. And in the book that inspired this series, Surviving Epic Trials, our friend Robin talks about two kinds of prayers. She said there are raven prayers, kind of symbolized by the raven in the story. And raven prayers are prayers that we pray where we don't get an answer for a long time. Some of you have been praying for the same thing for years. And you can relate to Noah who sends out this raven and doesn't know where the raven goes or why it didn't come back. There's sometimes you pray a prayer and it seems like you're not hearing anything from God or getting anything back. And you're like, what's the deal with that? But there's also dove prayers and dove prayers are the prayers we pray over and over again because the answer we get isn't the answer we want. 
And so we see Noah here. He sends the dove out and the dove comes back with nothing. He waits. He sends the dove back out. The dove comes back with a branch. He celebrates. He waits. Sends the dove back out a third time. He's continuing in this. And we're invited in a season that is desperate in a storm to continue with persistence to pray. Even if that means that we're continuing to pray and beseech God and come to him when he's not giving us what we want, but we're continuing to trust that he knows what we need. When I think about the word persistence, it reminds me of other words like faithfulness and trusting and steadfast. And there's a person that embodies that for me. His name is Andy Gray. He's the tall guy right here to uh, my left in the image on the right-hand side of the picture. And I got to know Andy in the 2000s and the 2010s when I lived in Phoenix. For several years, we served on the same staff of a church together. And it was during a particular season in my life that Andy and I became close. It was a season where I was really restless. And according to that persistence and manipulation chart, I was living out of manipulation because God hadn't told me, Scott, it's time for you to move on. But I was trying to move on into a new job, a new place of employment in the same career. I was restless in the church I was in. I was frustrated and I was trying to break free. And I think Andy sensed that and he took me out to lunch one day and over sandwiches, he invited me to share how I was feeling. And so I was just really transparent and poured my heart out and talked about what I was going through, what I was feeling and things I was trying to do or considering doing. At that time, our church was looking for a new pastor and Andy was leading the search team that was involved in that. And they spent two years searching for a new pastor for us. And I was honest. I said, Andy, I'm not mad at you. I'm not frustrated with you. I'm frustrated with the process and I'm just done. And Andy began to encourage me that day and he continued in the weeks to come and not just me, but our church. And every time I would get a note from Andy, every time our church would get a note from Andy, he would sign the note in the exact same, almost predictable way. He would say, stay faithful and keep trusting. Those were the words Andy spoke to me that day over lunch. Stay faithful and keep trusting, Scott. There are things going on that you can't see. God is at work in places you don't understand. And Andy believed that desperate times invited us into deeper dependence on God, that when we got to the end of our rope, when we got to the end of our patience, when we got to the middle of the most restless feeling that we had, that was a moment that we could step into deeper dependence on God, to stay faithful to him, to keep trusting him. Even when we didn't see the signs of it, that was the invitation. God apparently did not want me to leave that opportunity. And so I began to learn and I began to grow. And eventually Andy introduced me to a great guy whose name was Jason, who became our next pastor. And Jason became a great friend and a mentor. He developed me and platformed me in new and different ways. And it was part of Jason's ministry that set me up for Cornerstone to find me and for me to move to Prescott. Without Andy and without Jason, I wouldn't be here today. I moved to Prescott in July of 2016, and in August of 2016, just one month later, I got an email from Andy that was incredibly difficult to read. Andy was a triathlete, and he'd been experiencing pain in his hip during his races, and he'd been trying to figure out what the cause of it was. And they had found in August of 2016 that there was cancer in his bone, in his hip joint, 
And he wrote me an email to tell me about how they were going to have surgery to remove the cancer, to shorten his leg. He'd never walk the same way again and to begin some intense uh, treatment. Nine months after Andy sent me that email, Andy lost his battle with cancer and he died in May of 2017, three weeks ago this week. And as I was reviewing my correspondence with Andy this week and looking at pictures and remembering my friend, I stumbled on that last email Andy sent me, the one where he told me about what was going to happen in his future. And I want you to see how he signed that. I took a screenshot of it. It says, still trusting Andy Gray. It certainly wasn't the news that he hoped for, and certainly his story didn't end the way that he expected. But even in the face of incredible restlessness and frustration and the hardest storm that he'd ever went through, my friend taught me that he could still trust and he could still depend on God. And that's the invitation that we have today. Because in that moment, we're going to be tempted to manipulate our circumstances rather than persist in them. Let's keep looking at Noah's story. In the 601st year, in the first month, the 601st year is reference to Noah's age, by the way. In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. This is the news that Noah has been waiting for, that he's been sending out all these birds to discover that he looks and the face of the ground was dry. And here's the temptation he faced in that moment. We're tempted to rush the process rather than embrace it. We're tempted to rush the process. This is the moment that Noah has been waiting for dry ground. But what we're going to see in this story is that Noah finally gets the news and the moment that he wants, but he doesn't rush the final part of this process. We live in a world, we live in a culture where rushing is like second nature to us. Many of us, when left to our own devices, our default is rush and hurry. I know for myself, I often, when I can, without the dynamics of the COVID-19 situation, my default is to rush. And so many times when I rush, I forget things. I'll leave my house and I'll, I'll get somewhere. I'll realize I forgot my phone. It's hard to forget my keys there, but I'll forget my keys other places. I, I, forget, I forget my computer. I forget to bring something. I forget to do something. And in those moments, I will turn to the people that I'm with to explain why I forgot or didn't do what I said I was going to do. And I use a phrase that I'm sure you've also said before. And it's this phrase, I was in such a hurry. I was in such a hurry that I just forgot. I was in such a hurry that I just spaced it. I was in such a hurry that I just lost track of it. I was in such a hurry. And hurry is a speed that marks so many of our lives. But here's the thing. God is never in a hurry. I challenge you in the 66 books in the Bible, find me an example where God was in a hurry. God has really important things to do, more important than we do. God has really important things on his agenda, even more important things on our agenda. And yet God is never in a rush and he's never in a hurry. And yet for us, many times, if you think about conversations you probably had here on a Sunday at Cornerstone before COVID-19 and somebody asked you, hey, how's it going? So often your reply is similar to my reply. And that reply was a four-letter word that begins with B, busy. For many of us, busy, rush, hurry 
is our default. And I love what Dallas Willard says about this. He says, being busy is a result of your schedule. Being hurried is a condition of the soul. Being busy is when you have a lot of things in your calendar and you're not always in control of that. But being hurried is a condition of your soul. And even though many of us are still very busy during this season of the storm that's called COVID-19, I wonder if it's not just that you're busy, it's that you're hurried. It isn't just that your calendar is full, it's that your soul is hurried. And this is why I am so concerned about the rush and the desire to, quote, return to normal. I see this on social media. I hear it in the mouths of my friends. I hear it on the news. We want to return to normal. And I just wonder if there are some pieces of what we would call normal that we are so quick or rush to return to that would actually be better if we left them behind. I wonder if in our desire to go back to some things that feel comfortable and familiar, if we're going to find ourselves returning to things that are actually not good for our souls. Consider this question. What about your life from before mid-March needed to change? Like if you were honest, what about your normal was actually unhealthy? What about your normal was actually not life-giving? What about your normal was actually something that was working against God and not working with God? And as we all think about what returning to normal is going to look like in this particular season, I wonder, what if we're missing an opportunity to make changes? What if we're missing an opportunity to leave some things behind that need to stay behind and step into some new things? If you notice in the story, and we'll continue to see this in the next few minutes, Noah sees that there is dry ground and he doesn't just kick open the door of the ark and run right out. He doesn't rush out of the ark, even though for you and me, that would be our normal proclivity. Hey, I'm free. I can leave. Get me out of here. I'm going to kick down the door. And so often when we rush out of things, we miss the opportunity to change the way we re-engage. I've had friends this week who sent me pictures uh, from the dump here in Prescott. People take extra large pieces of trash and there are these exceedingly long lines as so many of us get rid of unnecessary stuff. I have friends who, who love to thrift and they are so excited for the season because everyone has been at home. So everyone has cleaned out their closet and there are deals to be had. And I think those are actually good desires, you know, to, to get rid of some of those unnecessary physical things. But I will tell you this. It is much easier to clean out your closet and clean out your garage than it is to clean out your soul. And what if in this season we didn't just get rid of physical baggage, but we got rid of the emotional, mental, and spiritual baggage too? What are some things that are in your heart right now that you need to allow God to process and not rush so that he can finish what he's doing. Now, I know even as I'm saying that some of you are getting physically uncomfortable because you know what those things are. But here's the thing. If you rush your way through this, you're going to have to experience God dealing with it some way. And I would hate for you to have to go through another storm to be able to deal with that. Why not allow God to deal with that right now? 
I got an email this week from somebody that I want to share with you. It comes from a mom and it just feels appropriate for today. She said, this period of social distancing has caused me to slow down, which in turn has enabled me to examine my heart and allow the Holy Spirit to direct my path. I had not spoken to one of my sons for 20 years. But during the last year, Jesus has helped me to, quote, prepare my field. Unknowingly to me, he was getting me prepared for reconciliation. We have had great conversations with much healing being done during this time. And my son has bought his plane ticket and plans to come visit on May 30th for one week. His 39th birthday is May 30th. There has been so much healing between these lines. My son loves Jesus and is living for him for now, living for him now, and my heart is bursting with joy. Jesus is the great healer. I have experienced this in other areas of my life, but I thought my relationship with my son would never happen. But God. Now, I can't promise you that every relationship in your life is going to be healed during this storm the way this mom's was. But I love her attitude because she has decided to not waste this storm. She's decided to not waste this moment and waste this opportunity for God to allow, for her to allow God to do something in her and through her that maybe wouldn't be possible at any other time. And so as you think about returning to normal, I just want to implore you, don't waste this storm. However long is left, don't waste it. And allow God to work in and through it and don't rush what God is trying to do. Let's finish this part of Noah's story right here in verse 14. It says, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, so we're talking at least 58 days after he saw the dry ground, the earth had dried up completely. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Here's the third temptation. We're tempted by independence when God is calling us to deeper dependence on him. We're tempted by independence. If you've been tracking with us in this story, what you'll notice there is in Genesis chapter 8 in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, we hear God speak to Noah and tell him it's time to leave the ark. And this is something notable because the last time we heard God speak in the text was when he told Noah to go into the ark. These tens and hundreds of days that Noah has been in the ark through this storm, the one constant has been God's seeming silence. The story is bookended by recorded moments of God speaking. And in the middle, there is no record of God speaking. And Noah is going through all these feelings of restlessness and cabin fever and frustration and being ready to be done. And in the middle of that, he has to reckon with and deal with the seeming silence of God. And I have to believe that at this moment in the storm, as we've been talking about from our own stories and from Noah, that that restlessness was leading him to be tempted by self-reliance, to take matters into his own hands in an independent way to get some relief. 
And yet what we see in the life of Noah is as much as his flesh, his sinful flesh might have wanted relief, he remains dependent and surrendered on God, which is super convicting for me. Because so often I want relief more than I want God. If I were to answer this question, which one do you want more, Scott, God or relief? So often, if I'm honest, I say I want relief. Even if it means I look for relief in places and in things that aren't God or godly. When we're in this section of the storm and we want with all of our being for it to be over and for us to be free, we're tempted to independence and to look for relief in places that have nothing to do with God. And if wanting God means that we have to wait for relief, we go, you know what? I want relief more than I want God. And yet the promise of scripture is that if we choose God, God sustains us until that relief comes. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet says these famous words, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God promises us that if we wait on him, he will renew our strength. In another section of the Old Testament, there's a king named Asa who is a great and godly king. But in a moment of crisis, he looks in an independent way to a self-sufficiency and a self-dependency rather than God. And a prophet has to come to him and correct him for what he did. And here's what the prophet says in challenging him that he did something wrong. The prophet says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. The message is that God is looking for those who are looking for him. And he's looking for those who are looking for him to give them strong support. And so if today you say, Scott, how much longer is this storm going to last? I hear you. On the phone this week, as some storms in my life hit me with more waves than I could handle, I told a friend, how many storms can one person handle at the same time? I'm grateful for this friend who encouraged me, who let me vent, and who let me know that God was with us in that storm. And when we're in that moment where you're saying, how long will this storm last? And how many storms can one person take on at the same time? We can either look to ourselves, we can look to escape, or we can look to God. And when we look to God, he promises that if we wait on him, he'll renew our strength. That if we look to him, he is looking to strengthen and offer strong support to those who depend on him rather than depend on themselves. And this is why I'm so amazed at our friend Noah. Is when given the choice, he didn't kick down the door of the ark. He didn't escape his way out of it, but he waited for God. And it was God who closed the ark in the beginning. And it was God who in the ending said, Noah, now it's time to leave. Again, quoting our friend Robin Kaufman, she says, it is ultimately God who opens and shuts the doors of our trials. And that is so hard to hear when you're in the middle of a a storm. That is so hard to hear when you're in the middle of a trial because you want to be the one to open that door. I want to be the one to open that door. I want to say, okay, I've had enough. I'm done. 
And yet depending on God in the middle of your storm often looks like restraining yourself. It often looks like telling yourself no. It often looks like saying, you know what? I could try to force my way out, but I'm going to restrain that and trust in God instead. He's the one who allowed this storm into my life. And he's going to be the one who calls the end of it. And in the meantime, instead of depending on myself, I'm going to look to him and depend on him. If you could say, Scott, that sounds really good in a sermon, but how do you do that practically? I'm really glad you asked. We're going to walk through this in our next steps today. And here's the first next step. I want to encourage you to reset your perspective this week using the serenity prayer. Reset your perspective. Many of you have heard this prayer written by Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s, popularized in many recovery circles. Here's how the prayer goes. Niebuhr wrote this prayer. He said, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. God grant me the courage to change the things I can. And God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. And so we've created with a friend of our, with the help of our friend Robin Kaufman from her book, Surviving Epic Trials, we've created a download for you at prescottcornerstone.com slash unsinkable. It's a one page PDF where this prayer from Reinhold Niebuhr, we look at Noah's story through it, and then we ourselves get to practice it. And so here's what that looks like. The first part of the prayer goes like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And on that PDF, you're encouraged to list specific things. What can't you change right now? Be honest, name those things. Specifically, what are the things you cannot change? And in praying, you're asking God to accept those. Secondly, God grant me to the courage to change the things I can. And then list those things specific. What are the things within your own power and control to change? And be really specific. And then third, and the wisdom to know the difference because so often our pain, our angst, our frustration, our restlessness is because we get things that we can change mixed up with things that we can't. If you're watching as a family today, this would make a great dinner conversation for you this week. I know in our family, we're eating more meals together than we used to. And so as you're at the dinner table together, what if you talked through this? Hey guys, what are the things we cannot change that God's calling us to accept? What are the things we can change that God's calling us to the, have the courage to change? And how can we have the wisdom to know the difference? What an awesome dinner conversation that would be this week. Number two, next step identify at least one thing you want to reset because of this storm. One thing you want to reset. So as you think about coming out of whatever storm you're in and returning to whatever that new normal is going to be, think critically about those things and go, what are the things I want to return to totally as they were before? What are the things I want to renew and have a new, renewed appreciation for that maybe I'd lost an appreciation for? And what are the things that I need to completely reset and change? But don't just go back in as the same person with the same perspective that you had before. Allow God to lead you to identify at least one thing that you want to change. And then number three, practice self-restraint in an area you're tempted to rush and control. And if our second nature is hurry, if our second nature is rush, if our proclivity is control, then what would it mean to practice self-restraint? And I have some ideas because these are things I struggle with. One idea is that there are many of us, including me, who have a hard time driving under the speed limit. And what if this week 
you made the conscious decision, maybe you got some accountability on this, to always drive the speed limit, or I know, crazy idea, drive a couple miles under the speed limit. You say, Scott, that sounds miserable. (laughs) Well, that's what self-discipline is. It's shifting our desires through a difficult, maybe even painful habit to shift our heart and desires. What if this week, second idea, you saw somebody online saying something you disagreed with that you think is wrong or incorrect, and you restrained the desire to correct them? You practice the discipline of letting them have the last word or letting them in your mind be wrong. I know it's hard, but that's what self-restraint is. Or what if this week you told yourself no? Something happened and you go, you know what? I'm going to tell myself no at least once a day. That self-restraint puts you in a position where you have to depend on God greater than before. And as we're learning through Noah's story, desperate times offer us a choice between self-reliance and surrender. And in the midst of the final days of our storm, we need to live surrendered more than ever before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are with us in this storm. I know there are times, there's some of us watching right now, listening right now, who sense that you are distant, who sense that you're not answering or even hearing our prayers. There's some places in our storm where we don't understand at all what you're doing. And so it's difficult to believe that you are with us. But you promise us in your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That nothing, heights, depths, things in the past or things in the present, nothing can separate us from your love. And so we cling to that today. We pray that you would convict our hearts about the places where our restlessness has led us into sin, where our restlessness has led us into rebellion and manipulation, where our restlessness has led us into a self-reliance when what you're trying to do is to break that spirit and to build a spirit of surrender and dependence. God, the storm that we're in today for some of us has rocked our world. And you're trying to use that rocking to awaken within us a realization that we can't do this on our own. God, I believe there's some people watching right now who've come to the place in their storm that they know they can't do this on their own and they need you. And if that's you today, I want to invite you right now to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. To stop trying to do life by your power in your own good efforts and to surrender yourself to him and to experience that renewing, that strengthening, that transformation. And if you want that right now, I'd encourage you to pray right along with me. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I've come to realize that I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm needy and I am inadequate. Thank you for showing me these things. Thank you for coming for me, Jesus, for dying for me, for paying the penalty for my sin and for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Today, I put my trust in you. I trust in you for mercy and grace and forgiveness 
a second chance. I receive all you want me to have. And Jesus, I want to follow you. Not just today, but every day. Guide me. Lead me. I trust my future to you. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. If you're watching right now and you prayed that prayer, we would love to celebrate with you. And there's a way that you can let us know that you prayed that prayer. There's a a number that's going to appear on the screen right now. And it says that if, if you've prayed that prayer, we would love to celebrate with you. You can text the word Jesus to 928-288-5490. We'd love to celebrate what God's doing in your life. If there's another need that you have, we'd love to come alongside you and pray with you. So again, text the word Jesus to 928-288-5490.